What's it like to start a music website? Well, I started Drowning Sound back in the year 2000, and one of the reasons I have done this series, looking at what the future could hold for music journalism, is because it's a good excuse to meet up with some people and chat about their experiences and to better understand the past so we might have a sense of what the problems are we need to address in the future. Emma Swan was one of the co-founders of DIY and we had a great conversation about some of our shared journeys, shared frustrations, shared excitement. She talks about how much she loves the new Bully album and I hope through this conversation you'll learn a lot about what it takes and maybe appreciate a little bit more what is involved in being the editor of a music website. The question I'm asking everyone is, what's your definition of journalism? Well, see, I think it depends. I think there's a difference between news journalism and entertainment journalism because I think you can be more creative in entertainment journalism because it's not just the facts. Um, there's a lot of storytelling in there, whereas news journalism, you, kind of, you can't really, well, people do, but you, you, you shouldn't be making things up or you shouldn't be like, sort of bending things or I think you know we can make words up we yeah. just make a word up and use it where I'd like to think that news journalists don't but I used to I think I used to think that what we did wasn't journalism it was writing yeah but I'm not as precious about that because I just used to think I was like it's not journalism because it's not serious I know exactly what you mean and I remember having some arguments in the really early days of joining sound with our news editor um, a guy called Ollie Appleby who was just this amazing force of nature. He'd turn up to festivals dressed in like army gear and like he'd have this whole like character for the whole weekend that he would sort of drop occasionally. But, um, and I just kept saying, we should make our news really funny. Like we should be like starting conversations off the back of every news story we post and having a take on the news. Um, and he was really, he was like, no, news is an objective fact reporting. Um, and quite a few of the other staff all agreed. Like I was... Mm. Um, but I really liked, especially when Gorka and things like those, those kind of sites arrived, they kind of told you what was happening. Like Jezebel was brilliant. Like it would have a real opinion on a news story. And I think, I think I've always struggled because like you, I think journalism is such an important and serious, like trying to find and report the truth. Um, and I think with music, cause it's objective and it's about what you love, um, it it shatters into different direction um but it still can be journalism i guess yeah i mean there's uh, it, it's very difficult when something serious happens i remember when taylor hawkins died and it was a saturday i think and it was that point of going no i need to i know it's the weekend but i need to write about i need, mm. you know if someone goes on our site you know touch wood we're very fortunate there's not a lot of bad stuff that must be mentioned but I was like no someone has to go on if they go on the site over the weekend and there's no acknowledgement that's worse yeah. you know I'd never want to I think I never want to be like the first to post about something like that because then you are you're chasing clicks and I don't mm. I know generally the whole thing is chasing clicks but not in a circumstance like that and I was just like no I'll do it it's the news is out there but yeah I didn't want somebody to click on go to our homepage and that big picture not be him mm. Um, but there's not a lot of times, you know, apart from that, it's so-and-so is doing a thing. 
Exactly. So you should, we should introduce you to the listeners. So uh, your name is Emma and yeah. you co-founded DIY. Yes. Um, what were you doing at the moment or before the moment you started it? And then how did it come about? Um, basically, I uh, went to uni in 2001 uh, and... I realised I was studying politics and realised uh, I don't know anything about politics. I'm really out of my depth. Uh, I think it's important to note this is not only pre-Google, but, uh, you know, if you wanted to look something up, it was a book in the library that have had to be printed and published. So, um, yeah, I just felt really out of my depth and just hated it. And my solace was in music and mm. uh, had made lots of friends online on music forums and just thought, oh, this would be fun. And it was meant to be just a website about bands. It was never, right at the beginning, it wasn't really a magazine type thing. Mm. Um, and there wasn't the money to print anything to like make a zine. So we just did it online. Which is very similar to how Drowning Sound started. You were also called This Is Fake DIY after the Biz song as well, weren't you? So it was Fake DIY and then sort of had different iterations but yes yep. I wasn't the best fan so I don't really know too much but the lyrics kind of made sense because uh I mean it still still does resonate doesn't it mm. <laughs> to be fair um where it was all about shiny things pretended they weren't shiny yeah um and we were we were just weren't shiny <laughs> this is also before WordPress might have existed I've never gotten with WordPress but uh we didn't have a CMS. There was no YouTube. I mean, you've got to yeah. remember as well the streaming links for videos and, and, and things like that. You sort of had to hand code them in. Um, and yeah, that was... It does, it did, the internet did feel much more handmade then as well. Like I think mm. a lot of people would have experienced it when MySpace came around with like coding their page and designing. But yes. I, I really felt like we were building something. Like I'd wait for a coder to come back from like... So we, one of the coders we had could only work in like his half terms. <laughs> um, and then he'd do like four days work and it felt like suddenly the pyramids had been built. It was like he'd done all this work and suddenly we could do like this whole other thing on the website. And It is quite mad to think that now you or I could go offline and build something more comprehensive than either of us had at the time in about mm. 20 minutes. That genuinely blows my mind. Yeah. But I guess we both had the benefit of not it being that barrier of entry meant that we could build an audience because it was quite difficult to start it. And yeah. you I mean, had and to be only, quite I determined. Did, I did some panels like a couple of years ago and I sort of looked it up and I think there was there was us and Pitchfork because at the time, I went on the Wayback Machine, at the time Enemy's website was just plugging the magazine. Yeah. So there wasn't, it wasn't even like that. But maybe they had some news. Yeah, I think they did news. Um, in fact, I'm tempted to chat to my friend Ben Peru, who start, who was one of the people that started Enemy.com, because um, I think it was up in about '97 or '98. They were like one of the first music sites. But, um, but yeah, that that moment in time, because I start like I didn't find like I think Pitchfork started like in the late '90s as well, and I didn't find that until about 2004. I think when Broken Social Scene came through and. Um, because I think it, I think it was someone saying something to us about you, and then something to us about Pitchfork, and it was like, oh, there's someone else doing like a similar thing. We just didn't know about it, which is strange to think of now. <laughs> yeah, like I, I sort of remember like a few other sites. And I don't know where they were chronologically. There was like a site called No Ripcord, um, 
There was no rock and roll fun. It's interesting how cynical all the names were as well. Like, I guess that kind of growing up with grunge, I think everything was kind of arch. And I mean, Drowning Sound is like the most miserable name I could come up with. So um, that, I think that also made it a kind of statement of the time. So so you started, was it 2002? Yeah. Um, and then since then, it's grown to be a fully fledged magazine. You've had a record label similar to, yes. to what we've done. You've promoted tours. Um, but your, I don't, I don't, I think you've got dual passions, but I think your main passion is photography and like, it's, in, it's really interesting how visual DIY has always been and how that probably benefited you a bit when YouTube and Instagram and those kind of platforms kind of appeared, would you say or not? Uh, I haven't really thought about it that way. Um, I think so. And like, I, so at some point I started coding the website. The current website I didn't build, well, actually, technically the current one I did build because it decided to die in May. And I had to like, <laughs> and I spent about six weeks working from like 7am to midnight. Ouch. To the database just went, oh, I don't really exist anymore. Um, is it, are you still doing, are you a bit like us still using the same database from two, the year 2000? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. In 2014, we had someone external uh, yeah. build a website, but two days after the Great Escape, it just stopped working. And between the host and the CMS, they were like, yeah, don't really know what happened. Managed to bodge together a database. This is incredibly boring, I realise. Um, no, but I think, together- it's in, I think it's important for people to know that when you're putting together a website, it's not just sign up for a Tumblr and give it a name and start posting. And I think, I think sites, legacy media, I guess we might now be rather than the new media that we once were. Like you did have to like build things. And I think that's really important. Yeah, and so I, yeah, I managed to rescue to 2021, um, and then from 2021 onwards, it was a lot of scraping the Wayback Machine. Oh, wow. And still, I mean, there's still gaps. We're still finding, oh, that's not there, like the Day of the Mercury Prize, the Showgirl album review. Mm. So it's like, right, we'll we'll scrape that back, we'll get that back on. Um, Yeah, nice glossy magazine. (laughs) It's just there is just six of us in total, yeah. Um, but yeah. So because I like think of the website, I do want there to be big, nice images because if you want someone to click on something, it's got to look visually appealing. Yeah. Um, and have personality. I think you know the reason anyone, well, for the most part, gets into an artist is some vague semblance of the artist's personality. Yeah. Um, as well as the music. So as a publication. Whereabouts do you think you defined what you were and what the music you were about was and who your audience was? Did you ever, was it ever that conscious or did you start to realise that the sum of the things, like as you said, you just started a website to cover bands. Yeah, and I think it wasn't that's really... at the moment when there's a good time for bands. Yeah, it wasn't really something we thought about for a very long time. Um, it was just, is it good? So way back when there was still all the hate for Busted, we were covering Busted, mm. which is now I'm like, the idea that, you know, Karang cover Busted, I'm like, well, it should have done all along. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was just, do we like it? And then it's only like, I think maybe into print, but we had to consciously think about it because there were some people we worked with right at the beginning of print that were not from our world. 
So you had to like justify the artists because they'd be like, oh, we've not heard of any of those. Mm. And it's like, well, you're from the like hip hop world. Of yeah. course you haven't heard of Frankie and the Heartstrings. Like mm. <laughs> what would you have done? But look um, how great his quiff is. <laughs> but it was, so it was only then. And, and also because of that, we were pretty much forced to include some pages of men's fashion. And that was not enough. That was the big sticking point because mm. editorial team has always been majority female. I mean, at the moment it's all female and it has been for years, but um we were just like, no, our readership is 50-50. And it is 50-50. If you go on all of the statistics, like it is, yeah, it is that. But it was always trying to justify that it's not a men's interest. That was always something I found interesting looking at the Drown Sound stats because our social following and from what I could tell from Google was around 60-40 male, but the forums are like 80-20 male. Um, but in fact, we don't ever ask anyone on the forum what their gender is, but that's just from what Google Analytics <laughs> says. Um, and that tries to work that out based on, um, I'm pretty sure if Google tried to work out my gender, it'd be very confused because of what I end up reading and browsing and <laughs> engaging with. And um, and I think that there's, there, there's, an, there's an odd thing with marketing. And I think when, because obviously a, I think advertising and running ad-supported media means that you have to kind of be conscious of it. Like when you work with people that are really in that world, they see music magazines as like a men's magazine. And I fa- I've always found that really offensive. And I'd imagine having <laughs> having run a magazine and being told you're doing men's fashion, not just fashion. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it was, I mean, we had to get bands to do stuff and that was funny. But um, mm. yeah, it was very frustrating because... It's not. But then I remember going into BH Smith during that period of time and the music magazines were in the men's interest, mm. as were the camera magazines. And you're sort of like, what's gendered about this? Yeah. No, it's And it's also at that time, like, I think NME did quite a good job of creating a magazine which didn't feel like it was for lads, even though they no. were in the same office as the kind of dying days of Loaded and Nuts and stuff like that. And I think they did, they put forward quite a lot of artists the, the, predominantly cute men <laughs> but, yeah but they were, it was yeah. it was soft boys and there's a there's a mm. huge difference between you know members of Franz Ferdinand hugging yeah and I don't know the twang yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think of a lad band yeah but um the enemy, yeah. I guess, felt like quite a la- lad band. Though annoyingly, I met Tom a couple of times. He's really lovely, and I never really yeah. liked his band, but he was really <laughs> nice. Um, that's yeah. Actually, you know, I've met quite a few musicians where you go, "Oh, your band's awful," but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you do you think there was a moment where it felt like everything started to make a bit more sense? Like. I think for me, we're drowning sound. That there was a moment we interviewed Bjork, and she said that she reads the site, and like I, I nearly fell off my chair when the writer told me. Um, and I think there was a there was a really nice moment when I realised that the music industry was so inside of itself that it hadn't it hadn't done a very good job at breaking artists. And it was when I reviewed the Wolf Alice debut album, and. I was just I just posted about it on my Facebook and sort of took a big chunk of my review and just posted it. And those people are like, I've never heard of this band, they're amazing. And I was like, 
they're literally like the biggest band in the music industry yeah. right now and it was a real moment for me of just being like ah oh, like the entire industry has placed this value on what's new and it's so new that it's there's not that development moment and I think it made me really rethink what Drowning Sound was and how to reintroduce artists and to treat Low as a legendary band, but not a band everyone's heard of. And like the music, so it, was, it was it changed the way I started to recommend music and talk about it and think about it. And I was just kind of thinking, like for me, there's there's certain artists that I've come across because of DIY, or I remember like all the press releases and everything having your quotes on. And there's one of there was like a moment like that for you guys. Uh, yes. Uh, what year was it? It was the Brits. And I was doing the social media pen, and I want to say it was maybe 2016. Mm. And we'd all got like little signs in front of us, and there was like, they were mostly fashion people that were going yeah. past. And Mark Ronson stopped and he's like, Which one of you is DIY? And I was like, Oh, that's me. He's like, Oh, I read it. It's great. I love it. And then went in, and everyone yeah. turned to look at me, and I was just like, um and then so immediately told everyone and then Mm. went to get they they, they were like can we get an interview with mark because he said this and apparently Mm. yeah him and lily read it and it's like that's really nice god (laughs) um those just just as an aside those red carpet things are really strange i've only done a few of them i did one at the krang awards once and it felt like i was the only person in the room that knew who any of the artists were and before anyone came in they'd all ask me about them yes uh yeah, being I mean it's it's fine if someone's from a fashion magazine and they, yeah. but they what helps is that they know the people from Love Island, the mm. influencers, things like that. So I'd be like, if I don't know who it is, but they know who it is, it's like a fashiony person. Um and then I'd be the ones pointing out the people they don't want to take photos of because they're dressed badly. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um Yeah, that was that was that. And then just there was I don't know if it was the same year or the next year, but being in, in there when Robbie did his, like, whatever the Lifetime Achievement Award performance was, and I had a total flashback to when Take That debuted Back for Good at the Brit Awards. <laughs> and I was at home watching it going, this is amazing. And I was like, oh, I'm here now. Yeah. I'm here now through work. I'm not, you know, not just bought a ticket. Yeah. No, I think I've had quite a few of those moments. I think I went to Jules Holland once and I was like, oh, I'm one of those people in the background on the telly now, <laughs> which I know you can apply for tickets for and everything, but I was sort of, um, it was when I released Martha Wainwright's album and she was on and it was just like, I feel like I'm like legitimately part of this kind of amorphous industry, which felt quite removed from essentially, I guess you didn't use the term, but I, I always think of Drowning Sound as a fanzine. Mm-hmm. And not and not really as a magazine. I and did like, have there was a there was a point a few weeks ago, uh, and there was something to do with like writers and like people wanting to write and things like that. And I just thought we used to be the the way people learned before they went to the establishment. And I was like, mm. we're the establishment now. Yeah. And it's sort of oh god. Yeah, because I. Like, I don't know about you, but a lot of us, our early writers and mid-era writers, they're all now, if they're not staff jobs somewhere, they are like, for instance, Peter White, who used to write for us the other day. Um, Peter, and Peter was a really core part of the site for quite a lot of years. And he's now at Deadline. And like, he's like breaking the story of like the Marilyn Manson 
Channel 4 documentary that's coming out and he goes off in interviews like the guy from Kiss it, it like can and like but he started out kind of writing about sunny day real estate and <laughs> like scuzzy indie bands that he loved um in fact he was who championed the darkness um right from the off and um was <laughs> he got a shout out on stage at reading <laughs> that was like what <laughs> um so yeah so the um but I, I think there's that thing of like you would nurture these freelancers give them the opportunities to go out and do stuff. And then have you got a few kind of people that come to mind when I mention that? Um, yeah, most of them have gone to not necessarily writing stuff. Although, you know, there's, there's been people that have left and gone into write. Like Elle Hunt mm. started writing for us when she was still at school. Um, the one that I think of is Sean Rowe, who I, she went to XL. The last I knew she was XL. Um, mm because she was about 14 when she started writing and was an incredible writer then. Um, But yeah, we used to do that. And then, yes, they'd go on and earn money writing for other people. But those other people either don't exist anymore or not in the same way. Yeah, there's lots of people that I can think of that have gone into the industry and done different jobs, like Charles Eubags that worked for us now, like overseas, the social and digital team at Global Radio. (laughs) So like... And he started off writing for us whilst he was copywriting for MS for his day job. <laughs> and I think that that kind of pathway into copywriting and to comms jobs and um, yeah, one of our writers worked at the Green Party and their comms team and those kind of things. It's like, I, I don't know if you, how many freelancers you always had or whether it was kind of your core team doing most of the things. Was that? Um, we had quite a few freelancers. Mostly for reviews, I think that's mm. that's the one that's difficult to do in-house as much. And then it would be like news would be generally in-house. Yeah, I'm trying to think of Jason Edwards went to become a booking agent. He used to mm. review bands and just constantly mention their scarves. <laughs> just, um, but yeah, he used to sort of, people would write while they were a student. And then they'd either go and get full-time work, which meant they couldn't write, or... Um, or become writers and it's not quite doesn't quite work the same now i think because there's so many outlets do you still feel like there's a lot of places to read about music because from from releasing records recently it's felt very strange like i know that there's a lot of places out there but there doesn't feel like a lot of the space that there used to be is out there so maybe things have become a bit more focused maybe it's I think it's twofold. There are loads of blogs, but not blogs in the way they were 15 years ago. Mm. There's a lot of WordPress built publications, which is not bad. I just, I don't know how else to, to group them together. Yeah. Um, They're like personal zines rather than yeah, and, something and, where there's a bit more push behind it. Yeah. Or it's sort of a hybrid because some of them, you can't tell whether it's one or two people doing everything or it's, supposed to be a magazine or not and that's not i'm i don't mean that to sound disparaging at all it's um it's wonderful that people want you know they see something and they want to write about it um regardless but then equally because there's so much music yeah far too much and far too much at the bottom end and by smallest end mm. that well it's about one hundred and fifty thousand tracks released every day according to spotify yeah and because there's so much and there's so much sort of development stage, 
that you can go on 20 websites and see new band features about completely different artists. Yeah. And then in turn, if those places have covered them, the press releases that I get will be 30 or 40 artists with the same amount of boxes ticked. Mm. That there's nothing to differentiate between them pretty much because they'll, they'll either be sort of electropop or post-punk mm. too. So there's, no, you know, there's nothing, nothing to decide between them. And that's, I think it's really that, I think that's what's personally for my personal, like day to day thing. That's the biggest thing because it's, if I've got 20 spots to fill, you've got the artists that we've been covering consistently, sort of maybe some, some heritage acts that we've covered in the past. And in the back of your head, you know, the reviews are going to get traffic. Mm. And then there's the band who never covered releasing an EP when they've got all these quotes. And I'd love to cover more of those, but I can't, there's just not the space or resources. And I, and I think it's also knowing what impact is going to have for that artist, because if you're searching out for good new stuff, it takes a long time with a lot of stuff to go through. But without having the stuff that's bringing the traffic in, there's a lot less light to shed <laughs> on everything else. Then this is this has always been one of my big quandaries with music journalism is like there was at one point the NME was covering about thirty five new acts a week, which and it went from doing the radar feature, which was kind of like one new act, and then everything else was like acts that could play to like a few hundred people um, and bigger, um, and it suddenly felt like the floodgates had opened. And because how do you see that balance of Actually, I'll phrase it another way. How frustrated do you get when you love a new act and you can't quite get your readers to click on it? Um, it yeah, because there's just so much. And you'll see that the thing that gets most attention is generally because of the PR that's doing it. And that's, don't give me that's why you choose the PR you choose, because that's the person that's right for you. But it is very frustrating when, say, one act will get all of this attention and you know that it's it's not just the music and to some to some extent sometimes it doesn't have to be about the music because if you've got say a really funny front person you want to back them because yeah. the world needs more characters and you know that's more fun i, I was like, thinking more along the lines of for instance let's say you discovered an artist you really like at the moment and you really want your you really think your audience is going to really love them <laughs> Like, how do you balance out the, like, covering them repeatedly or giving them more space than you normally would? Or, like, does that feel like it's harder than it used to be? Because that was one of my big frustrations about 10 years ago. And it was where I started to think this isn't working anymore. Was I kept discovering artists. Like, I remember with EMA, I absolutely adored everything that she was doing. Um, and I didn't feel like much of our audience was picking up. On, like mm -hmm. I could see the traffic on things we were posting and like just there was it felt like there was a moment where people weren't as interested in the recommendations but because when they opened up the homepage they could click on a Radiohead live review or a feature on some like secretly Canadian established band or something like that and I felt like some weeks we would have so much run on the site that you couldn't keep up with it anyway if you tried because I think most people have got like 15 minutes a day at most to like dig into a website that's always been my kind of view of it so yeah so like how 
how do you feel when you found or what do you do when you find something that you love and you really want to push uh just find ways to include it where possible because i think that's all you can do like sometimes things aren't just aren't going to click with an audience regardless um is that when you decide to do a shoot with them and kind of invest a bit more time um no, I think I think the shoots and stuff tend to be the things that are in theory, which is because there's, mm. there's no one way of really knowing how big an artist is. But um, the, it should be we try and make it so the resources are put into the things which are going to perform, and then if there's something we personally at any point want to do more with, then we'll find ways of doing that. Maybe it's a, a feature that's just online instead of in the magazine because obviously in the magazine's yeah. only so much space uh just other other ways of sort of giving things a bit more of a spotlight that we personally want to um obviously a lot of it isn't down to us at all <laughs> it's down to the artist availability and yeah. whatever micro schedule they've got how does your editorial decisions work then you said there's about six of you um, is it a WhatsApp chat with, or is it a um, bit more formal than that? Sometimes it's slightly more formal. Like we'd be had a class of 2024, like initial discussion, um, a couple of weeks ago. And that was in the office, um, sort of going through suggestions and, and people that PRs had come like with Lisa, the features editor basically emailed PRs to say, what's your, what have you got? Yeah. Um, so that we, there wasn't someone we like, oh no, we should have put them in and, hadn't tried um although we had a very good idea of, of what we we're thinking anyway but it's always nice to know what else is coming up even if it's just for future noi features and, and things yeah. like that um is that how you pronounce it noi sorry i've always yeah. read it i've always <laughs> i've, I've never 100 percent knew it's yeah. like yeah n-e-u yeah yeah not nothing to do with the band but just yeah. german <laughs> um and other times it's sort of on an ongoing basis, pretty much. We can't we haven't really got time to just stop and think. Yeah. Separately. And how how have your so there's been a lot of discussion around record reviews. How has your approach to them changed? Because I feel like going back to what you were just talking about a minute ago, like the, vo- the the abundance of music and the volume of stuff coming out, like are you primarily picking stuff that you want to give coverage to that you like, so therefore your reviews skew a bit more positive or will is, is there a change there at all? Um, I went through a period of a few years ago of going, why? Of questioning the, the need for them. But I think the need is not so much, is this good or not? People want to know if their reviews are being backed up. Hmm. Um, we've always, I've always had a thing that if I'm going to give space to something, not going to give space just to slag it off. There are artists that we've never covered or barely covered. And generally it's because if they're about, there's no point us, what I think for the fir- in the first instance, covering something just to say that shit. Because hmm. what does it gain? It also puts a spotlight on that artist. And to me, it's almost a stronger thing just to ignore that they exist. Um, And it also just stokes just the wrong kind of conversations. Um, On the other hand, if it's someone we have covered before positively and then they put out a shit record, then not afraid to say it's shit. Um, Or an artist that perhaps 
does fall. Yeah, I mean, because we have said things are rubbish before. <laughs> We've said them that they're rubbish for before and had, uh, yeah, interesting reactions. I got death threats from some good Charlotte fans once. Oh, um, yeah. But... Yeah, I think we had that from Corn fans once. <laughs> um, but it's... But I've realised that it's sort of a filter. And like you say, if people have 15 minutes a day, they're not the people that are constantly refreshing Metacritic, which is a whole mm. other issue that I'm not not really into I feel like when we get when we review say Olivia Rodrigo we'll get loads of tweets why haven't you reviewed insert name of other pop star Mm. and it's like well it's not really you know our thing or even like you're not trying to be comprehensive no um but I do want to make sure that there's a broad spectrum so I will always try depending on what's released that month, um, in try includes sort of all cross genres. So, so, it's, so it doesn't focus just on one thing um, to make sure that, yeah, it's not focused towards any one thing too much. Um, then I sort of have in my head a mental A, B and C list and that's not linked to how big they are. Mm. So uh, it's linked to how much we've covered someone or integral they are in various different ways um and then it's how much space there is but the last couple of months have been horrendous Mm. um in that there was i think my shortlist had like 50 names for september then the the end of september ones i was like right i'll put them in october because there's no room in september and then october came and it was even worse and there were records well metric was one that slipped through the cracks because i was just like there's no yeah and also like they're not oppressing which is relevant which is relevant to me because i released one one of their earlier exactly (laughs) yeah so like but for our readers you know if you're like a and and in my head i always have like a a suburban kid from not from london that's sort of 14 15 just getting into stuff is a random metric album that's not being hailed as their greatest ever Mm. like what you know and but equally, I'm aware that they are a cult band that a lot of our older readers will have been into. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting, actually, thinking about who that reader is, because, like, I often think about my 15-year-old self in, like, a small seaside town quite a lot. And then I think about some of the people I meet every so often at parties or stuff that are kind of into music, but not that in like they don't keep up and they don't really know what to follow or who to trust and um and i think those are quite they're quite interesting kind of benchmarks to have in your head have you got have you got those kind of other characters in your mind sometimes Um, no but i do distinctly remember the first time i went to jumbo records in leeds and i have never felt more intimidated in my life Mm. because i'm from milton Keynes. milton Keynes doesn't have an independent record shop uh it should do it's a city of like yeah. 250,000 people, but it doesn't. And so my, you know, my youth was going to our price HMV. Well, when we got an HMV, it was exciting. When we got a Virgin Megastore, it was exciting. Mm. So I remember going in there. There was probably some random jazz on. The records weren't organized in the same way. Yeah. There was no easy way to immediately see what I was interested in. I'm really and glad you're saying this. Can I just share my confession so you feel less bad? I once went to Rough Trade to buy an Explosions in the Sky record and I couldn't find it because it was filed under the the US label. <laughs> I was like, well, it wasn't under 
A to Z. It wasn't under Bella Union, who I think were releasing it in the UK. Like I literally was Googling in a record shop, trying to like work out how I would find the record. And yeah. like, we are two very clued up people that work in music. So it's, the record shop should be easier to navigate. Yeah. And so they are a very intimidating uh, environment, especially for someone who hasn't grown up going to record shops or is maybe just discovering I mean, what, I literally worked into. in one when I was 16. <laughs> And so I think of that and I don't want anyone to read the magazine and feel like that. Mm. I equally don't want someone who does know their shit to read it and feel patronised, but I never want somebody to think this isn't for me in yeah. any way that that's, uh, any way that, that that could be meant, unless, of course, you really hate guitar music, in which case there will be some things in there for you, but most of it's probably not. Yeah. Um, she says with a giant bass on the wall behind her. Yeah, I can't, I can't, it is a bass. I can't <laughs> play it. It's, yeah. it's just, a, it's gathering dust. Um, and yeah, that, that that idea of who the audience is, I think is really important and like so central to, to what you build and why you're building it. So we've talked a bit about the past and a little bit about what you've been up to recently. Like what sort of things do you feel have changed over not necessarily recent years, but kind of, over a period of time which have made made it either more challenging or more fun to like run DIY? Um, well, fun is, I mean, the access, well, to a point, the access. You mm. know, like um, bigger and bigger artists or I just remember the days when you'd sort of ask for some to go to a gig and they'd be like, oh, no, sorry. Yeah. Um, and it took a long time to be taken seriously. And then that again happened with print because I mean, yeah. now, now most people do both and it's one person that does, does them. But for a while it was, you know, get told, well, you need to talk to online, but you'd go to online and put, because the artist manager wanted it in print, they send yeah. you back to print. Um, and, you know, put no, in I requests. think until about 2008, I think we were, like the online PRs did not have the same access to the artist. They'd no. get like an hour with the act and they'd have to schedule in like five interviews. And, and a lot of them were people that just built the website. So, oh, you know, mm -hmm. the internet, you're doing the internet things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, so that's definitely shifted. And I mean, I remember when, well, I mean, you must remember when people started being online PRs mm. and they actually thought, oh no, we need to do something about the internet. Yeah. Um, I vividly remember actually in 99 when I was doing my fanzine email thing before Drown and Sound, um, there was a really good PR company and a guy called Mike Gawley who was Coldplay's PR, I think at the time. And they were, re they were part of Hall or Nothing and they were called something else, I think Revolution or something. And they took me seriously and I was like, oh, this is great. This is really easy. And then I contacted every other PR <laughs> and they were just like, you need to contact the student press team. <laughs> um, you need to like, and then I'd speak to like an online PR and they'd be like, yeah, we don't have any CDs. We can't send you the record. Um, if you want to review it, you need to go out and buy it. <laughs> I was like, and that was like until about 2002, 2003. And I think even still in like 2008, it felt like online wasn't quite taken as seriously because the industry didn't take it as seriously. But once YouTube and Spotify, because Spotify was kind of in its early days, then I think the digital teams within major labels and things had all changed. And I think, I think indie labels had already always been good to us. Like Mark from Wichita, like 
one of the loveliest human beings in the industry and would be like dragging me along to go see a secret gig and he'd not really tell me who it was and I'd be like seeing bright eyes or something in like a tiny show um and yeah I think there was lots of people that got it and got what we were about and what we cared about and I think that that I would imagine was probably quite similar for you guys but then you try and get like I don't know, like a Depeche Mode CD or something and it wasn't being done by Mute in-house, it's being done by some big PR firm that didn't do online and you'd just be like, okay, <laughs> we won't review that then. Yeah, it was, uh, I remember the first the first record I got before it came out was Elephant. Mm. Um, and it was, it was sent with Was that like 2004 or so? Yeah, 2003. And it, it's... I didn't I'm not get, a massive white stripes fan. Oh, they're my favourite. <laughs> they're my favourite of all time. So that was why it was so exciting because I was listening to it and it was the Friday. It was sorry, it was the yeah, the Friday before the Monday it was coming out. And I was like, oh my god! And I got like an apology that it wasn't the special PR version. But I was like, I don't mind. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like it's not out yet. I can listen to yeah. it. Um, you might be able to get an opinion out within the week of it being released. Yes. <laughs> Which I, I think now it's that changed quite a lot because like print magazines used to get albums three months in advance mm-hmm. because they'd go to print like a month before the, the album came out. Like, and I know there was definitely a period of time where artists were delivering their albums quite late. Like, I mean, like I, I remember talking to one label about like a Lana album and they were like, it's out on Friday and they didn't have it like on the Monday. And Yes. And there's increasingly embargoes and not mm. necessarily for the ones you expect. Yeah. And it's, so then that's like pushing, oh yeah, that record's out on, I don't know, the 15th of the month. So you have to put it in the issue that's afterwards. You can't put it in the one that's before. Um, And I get it when it's a huge pop act. And I get it maybe if it's a record that's got lyrics that refer to things in, I don't know. But sometimes it's a record where you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> they're like you need to take this down there's an embargo it's like what and you didn't tell me because mm. if you if you know if you say oh yeah there's an embargo on this date it's annoying but fine yeah when we launched the quietus um ben myers went along to review the metallica album at like a listening party came back like wrote the most beautiful brilliant review about, about how great the metallica record was and um we got asked to take it down we were like what at no point did anyone in this process say there was a date when we couldn't publish a review. Um, and um, we started bartering with them. We were like, look, can we get an interview with Lars? And we'll take it down. Because <laughs> it was a really good review. And we yeah. were like, I mean, Ben Myers is now like quite a big, like he's written the Gallows Poll and things. And um, I just remember that, but that was like week one of the Quietus launching and we had a review of the Metallica <laughs> Um but um, yeah, there's been a lot of discourse about, I think Charlie XCX wore that t-shirt and I, I can't remember exactly what it said off the top of my head. It was something like critics don't matter or something like that. Um, Which is weird because she's generally been... Yeah, fav- like Like, yeah, she's almost like a critic's favourite more than a pop queen. Yeah. like, And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that it's unfortunate that she hasn't sold the records that she should. Hmm. Because of who knows why, probably, I don't know. I can't, I'm not speculating. No, I, I think a, I think a lot of the the like when artists are that big, I don't think they realise like how big they are compared to like everything else. Yeah, um, I think within pop, the discourse seems to be, oh, you don't need 
interviewers. Yeah. You know, like, which, yeah, Beyonce doesn't. Beyonce doesn't need anything. Mm. But I think even, even yeah, Lana Beyonce, does. Beyonce could be shining a light on loads of other artists. Like, she could be using her platform. Like, this was, this is always the problem I have with In Rainbows. Radiohead collected all that data and, like, never used it to, like... They could have been promoting Fortet or promoting, like, all these other artists that they love. Um, and, yeah, I, like, that... But it's also... They don't... This this is one of the other things that I, th I think is quite challenging in that the media's kind of been hollowed out by artists going direct to fan on everything. Um, and, like, I remember the moment when we used to get loads of traffic from festival announcements... Because I'd turn up to like the latitude announcement, and I'd be like live tweeting who was being announced, and we get loads of retweets, and then they'd send their press release out. Um, now that's just posted as a poster straight to all their channels on a certain day, and it gets shared around. And same with Coachella, and same with tour dates for most artists, and even the Mercury Prize and Brit nominations mm. and everything like that. That's I remember once going to the announcement for the Mercury Prize, and the, I mean the, now the press release goes out before you're even yeah. in the room. So that people can write their story yeah. to get published when it's announced. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there is a benefit to a good interview, a good profile. Mm. Um, mostly, I don't know, maybe it's just that a lot of artists' presence seems to be hyper-curated, even when they're trying to be relatable. Yeah. And I say trying to be relatable because it doesn't mean they are relatable. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of cringe when that word comes up. Because I'm just like, but once you've got that as a name, it's not going to be it. Yeah. Because maybe they're not. Maybe they're not relatable. Nobody wants Adele to be relatable. No. She's a multi-millionaire in yeah. her house in LA. <laughs> like, the way she speaks, relatable. But, yeah. like, no one wants her in her jogging bottoms on the sofa. Mm. And that's okay. Yeah. But you also want, like, to get a sense of what she cares about. Where, where from, because she's got so much more time because she's not living the life that the rest of us are living. Like she can process the world differently and like she's not trying to get 20 different reviews up every week. And No, but or, somebody is trying to get, people are still trying to get her records reviewed even though, yeah, yeah that, that's the other thing with, with reviews is just like as much as on one side you'll see people say, oh, they don't count, they don't matter. I'd be like, tell that to my inbox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like well, somebody wants them to exist. What's your daily email count roughly? Maybe four hundred. Okay, that that's that's about that's about where I kind of expected it to be, and that, yeah. and I guess there's a lot of press releases go to the news team, so you miss out on all those. And um, the, uh, no, it, yeah, what we try and tell people just to send it to all of us because yeah. it's so frustrating to then Sarah to get chased. Oh, are you reviewing this? And she asked mm. me, and I'm like, "What record? I didn't know that that existed." Yeah. Um, and I'm like, "I don't expect me to. I don't have the time to read everything, and certainly don't have the time to reply. Yeah. But I want that information in there so that when I'm searching for releases out on a certain day, yeah, the email exists." Yeah, because um, that that's one of the weirdest things is that we're using email to do this stuff, and like. Anyway, that's the whole separate conversation, which I don't think for people that don't work in our jobs that it's as relevant. But I think, um, I think I'll uh, I'll wrap up with a few other questions mm -hmm. I had. 
because um, I feel like we're going to end up talking for hours. Um, and I was curious because you're in print and because you just talked a minute ago a bit about how the industry revered that and then they sort of shifted to digital and then like I have this theory that magazines are going to have their vinyl moment and people are going to want the tangible physical object um, from for nostalgia reasons people like us that grew up buying magazines but I think also because um, I think you can gain such a different perspective on music from flicking through a magazine than browsing a website or relying on your timeline Whereabouts do you see the print magazine versus the online world at the moment? Pretty much like that, to be fair, because I think it is different. And if you, you know, kids' walls, I say kids, teenagers' walls are still covered in pictures. And I think in the same way that, you know, I use film cameras, um, as, you know, to a lot of people, that's why it's so expensive. Mm. (laughs) Um, And whenever... I think like vinyl, it'll be it's niche, but when you're interested, you're super interested, and there might not be a space for more general magazines. Mm. But what we're talking about is a very niche interest. Yeah. So I can't see it disappearing because it's it's just a different experience. You know, that people don't have the time to click through on a website, or they might not want to scroll through on their phone. Because you've got TikTok for that and you've got Instagram yeah. for that. So the idea of like pausing and reading something is it's just a different experience, like putting on a record as opposed to just auto-playing Spotify's. And I, th- I think there's also that idea that you value the thing that you've got. Like I find browsing the internet right now, just there's so many adverts on so many websites. Like if I ever accidentally click on something that's a reach website and it's literally got like a... Um, the one where you have to it, answer the question in order to keep yeah. yeah and then there's like a square box every two paragraphs and there's like a something will pop over and you can't close it and then when you try and close it you end up going to a different page and losing your place it's like I struggle to concentrate at the best of times and if you're trying to read like a 1500 word piece at 8 o'clock in the morning before you've had coffee <laughs> it's like that doesn't work yeah. for me um, so whereabouts do you see the value like value is one of those weird words like authenticity and relatability but i think the you you obviously invest a lot of your life into doing this um and i'm sure it f- showers you in riches <laughs> unimaginable riches um uh and if anyone didn't realize that was very sarcastic um but what what do you think is the thing that's um most valued by the audience and then I guess by the artists and by the industry to some extent like what do you think it is that that's keeping this medium and media alive in a time when there is YouTube and there is TikTok and all these other mass market huge things and like we obviously saw last week with Bandcamp closing the sadness that one of the best editorial outlets that's very well funded has disappeared. Um, sorry, this is a very long meandering question. So uh, stop me. Um, so what is it you think that, that people value? Context. Because you, you know, each of those um, other platforms are great to go to a specific artist. But what the algorithm puts next to one artist is not... It's, that's automatic. That's diff. It's it's kind of different. So they'll just go, oh, you're on Wolf Alice. 
well, we'll put Arctic Monkeys next because they're another big indie band mm. without it. Not that obviously they do go next to each other. But if you, a, a publication or a, a, I suppose, I don't like the word curated in terms of journalism because mm. I find it a bit pretentious and I'm very anti-pretentious, yeah. but... Um, well, I always see it, it as DJing. Yeah, you're, like, you're you're putting things next to each other that maybe don't sound the same, but they might have the same vibe. Yeah, you're sort of putting it's, it shows humanity. You know that there are artists that have a similar vibe, or that somebody is going to like them both, but the algorithm wouldn't necessarily think so. So, yeah. you know, uh, I mean, I think the Olivia Rodrigo is a rock record. So yeah. in my head, I will put it next to I don't know Fiddler. They've both got a very mm. bratty sort of self-deprecating thing in different ways. But the algorithm is not going to do that. No, it's going to play your Phoebe Bridges. Yeah, what Taylor Swift. Oh, you know. Yeah. Um, and yes, there are, you know, a Phoebe Bridges fan is going to probably like Olivia Rodrigo and likewise a Taylor Swift fan. But I suppose Phoebe Bridges is a great example for this because she's she can be put in so many contexts. Mm. And then there's so many different ways that people can find her based on those contexts. But um, but it, I think it's when it's it's almost like making a mixtape. Your friend's making a mixtape for you, thinking you've got to like these. If you like this, you like that, without saying those words. Because I think sometimes, also that's in a lot of press releases. But I think yeah. a lot of the times it's just assumed that if this band sounds a bit like this, you're going to like them both, and that's not necessarily the case. But like just before this interview, I read your review of the new Bully album, um, and you just, I think you described it as the album of the year. Um, it's um and i and i revisited it and i really loved it the first time first few times i listened to it and i don't know why i've not been listening to it more and i loved it but it wouldn't necessarily jump out in any of those artists we're just talking about even though it's the right next step because it's gonna you're suddenly gonna play someone something that's gonna blow their mind and that that to me is what journalists or critics can do um that a machine that's just trying to serve you more of the same is not necessarily gonna do yeah and and, you know Depending on, I guess, who you are, the way that the artists that you pull out from listening to a record are going to be totally different to the next person. Mm. But if someone reads yours and then goes, oh, I like them and I like them, I'm going to see what this is about. Or, um, yeah, I just think it's it's sort of arranging things in a way to make maybe, I mean, it might not, does it make, I don't know if it makes people listen to certain things. Genuinely, mm. there's no... And I like that there's no way of knowing that. We've got so much data that's like, oh, this and this and this. Yeah. But um, to, to basically, yeah, display the artists and who they are in a way that makes, ideally makes me want to, to engage with them. Because like my favourite band are the White Stripes and I first listened to them after reading an enemy cover feature, which was the whole one where they're like, are oh, they brother and sister? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that. It was the way they described Jack. I was like, I need to listen to this band. And I kind of love that. And I still think that that can happen because the way that people listen on TikTok is different. Mm. I love TikTok. I can spend hours on it. Uh, But it's not somewhere... I don't often notice the song that's playing. Yeah, no, nor do I. And I will skip if it's an artist trying to introduce themselves because those are awful videos. Mm. But whereas... Yeah. So just to, just to to kind of invert that question a bit, this is not meant to um, be an existential crisis question, but do you think the idea of individuals or influencers, as they are now known, um, versus like a publication has shifted? Like I, 
I always struggled with drowning sound and partly because I think my music taste is all over the place and so many of the records I love got bad reviews on my own website um, and so many of the records that I thought were pretty mediocre got really good album reviews <laughs> um, and they defined what drowning sound was um, like I remember we, we we wrote a really bad review of the BDI album and it was just a bit nasty and like I didn't really agree with the sentiment of it and um, and Dan rest is he's rest in peace he he was brilliant at writing acerbic reviews and I always found it really difficult because I couldn't defend everything we published and the the idea that like for instance the first Panic at the Disco album I think is a masterpiece <laughs> and it's got like a six out of ten review um six out on 10. Our... that's not even that's not even that just means oh yeah it's good that's not even scathing, well, is, is it? This That's... is the thing. Anything under a seven, people saw as negative, which I, know, I never which quite is not understood. True. Yeah. Three stars, good. Four yeah. stars, really good. Five yeah. stars, like, cannot be... There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. Five stars is reserved for all... Like, I never used to give very high scores to stuff that I really loved either, and it was a whole other thing. But, but just part of me wonders whether this idea of a publication um, is as relevant... Because I think I think it is if you've got a really group, good group of people with different tastes and you can really showcase who the, who they are and what their tastes are. I'm just curious whether you've had any thoughts on that over the years. Um, not really. No, no, I haven't really thought about it. Um, I don't really engage with like reaction videos or anything like that yeah. to, to really know enough about how that side of things works. Mm. Um, nor do I really care about any one particular person's opinion <laughs> but i i think the thing is when i find someone whose opinion i trust like there was a certain journalist when i was growing up and like for instance stephen wells or swells he used to hate all the records i really liked so if he gave a really bad review to something but he also loved arab strap so i kind of was a bit like well his somewhere in amongst the things that he really dislikes and the things he really likes is things that i'm going to be into um and I remember like with Everett True, like probably about a third of his music taste, like his stuff that I'm going to really like that I wouldn't have got into otherwise. And like Stevie Chicks always just like introduced me to amazing hip hop records and um, or noise records. And like, and the way he wrote about music made me felt welcome and like I could enter into, um, but I found it, I find it increasingly hard to find people whose taste I trust Um and I just wonder whether that's something which is shifting with the web. And because I, I think with DIY, you've put together something which whenever I open reviews, I'm kind of, it feels quite reliable as a publication, which is something that's really hard to, to build. I definitely try to first be consistent. So if a, for example, a writer comes along and in the review says that the artist's last record was terrible. And I mm. look, I look back to say, what did we say? Because yeah. if we didn't say that, then that's not going in there because yeah. that's, if we, so I take it yeah. that whatever we've published is what we stand behind. So if there is a review, if there's ever a review that's scathing or a five, always, I always put it to the team to talk about yeah. because it's like, are we willing to back this? And in the mm. middle, you know, if any three, three and a half, four, four and a half, generally fine. Um, unless it's something that we've all decided is terrible, but the chances of that then going to an external writer, mm. it's not very high. We will definitely try and 
if something's if there's a certain opinion that among the team is like this this review should say then one of us has got to do it because otherwise yeah. I'm not going to put words in someone else's mouth um nor am I going to censor somebody yeah um unless, unless or you, you might or you might just not run it if you felt like it was kind no of I think piece, in the past yeah. you know there have been reviews where someone's written something and it's been someone that we've later confirmed to cover with or yeah. or something like you know covering heavily and i've gone back to the writer and just said by the way this is the thing so you'll get paid but we're not going to run it because i'm, I'm laughing because you just reminded me we had we loved burst apart by antlers so we agreed to do an, a site takeover before we'd even heard their new record <laughs> of the second record of the fourth record or whatever it was the one after burst apart and um, the reviewer really didn't like it and I was like, can we just wait to run this review? And then it, the review ran. I was like, why is it run already? They're taking over the site next week. Um, and the band thought it was hilarious to review the review. So they rewrote the review as if it was like a restaurant review. <laughs> um, with with comments about the writer's writing. <laughs> um, and they did a really great takeover, to be fair to them. And I did point out to them that I liked the record a lot more than the review. And But yeah, that... That like awkwardness of you agreeing to do something with an artist and then And then um, and, and since there's been a few instances where we've asked to do something with an artist and they've been like, Well, what score is the record getting? Hmm. And so well, I don't know at the moment, but um, Yeah. There, there was something really interesting. I spoke to um I don't know if you know the writer Kevin Perry, he's does stuff the independent in places and um he moved to LA and he started writing for one of the weed magazines and to review weed they get five people to do it and they have a collective review that runs on that, that runs as the publication so it's like they have that to... makes sense because it is something that does react differently yeah so like, they, they have like different they have to smoke it in three different kind of environments over the course of the week um so they review weed and I just thought it was brilliant that idea of like a hive mind of five people covering a record and yeah um there's something really nice about it is like this collective endeavor <laughs> i mean it's so stoner the idea that yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah no definitely if, if something's likely to be either end of the scale do make sure that it 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 firstly fits with things we've published previously yeah. um and then like no one among among us massively disagrees with something um but yeah, that's more to do with consistency, I think, than anything else. Well, I think I can ask talking to you. We've just hit the hour <laughs> mark, apparently, according to where I've just glanced yeah. at the time. Um, my final question for you is, um, well, actually, there's two questions. Firstly, ha after everything we've said, what's the difference between journalism and music journalism? Music journalism is a form of entertainment. That that is the answer, isn't it? <laughs> like, um, you don't need it to be informed because, especially now, because you know you can find the facts. It's you read it for enjoyment, in theory, yeah. <laughs> or to be annoyed if you. That's what you want to do. <laughs> do we think the term journalism is even the right term? I don't think I... it is. I think it's writing because mm. I think journalism is. Yeah, it's news. It's it's things that have very strict, in theory, have very strict rules about what you can and can't do. Hmm. But in music journalism, well, some of the most celebrated writers just wrote a load of random shit and published <laughs> yeah. it and they got celebrated for it. So, 
you know, we can make a word up. Yeah. We can, I don't know. What was it? I was it Pitchfork posted that GIF instead of a Kings of Leon review? Like, you yeah. can do that. Yeah. Whether you think that's good or not, you can do it. But, you know, mm. you can't really do that rec reporting about, I don't know, the economic crisis, can you? Yeah. Like, the, um, and... I guess finally, just like what other things are you doing? Like you're you lecture half the week, don't you? No, so I'm actually a student. St oh, you're oh, a student. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm doing a part-time masters. Yeah, because the way it was on your a bio, I read somewhere. I assumed that you were lecturing. No. So, no. so you're learning. You're learning about the music industry. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really interesting because it's it's like obviously there's a lot of people there that are learning about what happens in the music industry, but. Mm. Uh, it's almost like all these academic theories and applying them to the music industry, which has been, that's been so fascinating. The mixture of realizing I do know what I do know, which mm. if, as I'm sure you also feel, if you're self-taught and you sort of just like created your space, imposter syndrome is very real. Yeah, Because you didn't earn it in, in a way that somebody else said, yes, this is, so you sort of, um, so it's been very, that's been very really good. Um, and also just, yeah, realizing these things that you just know that there's like a theory for it, but then also that it's not about what people know; it's the power that they have and their egos, mm. yeah. <laughs> and that that drives pretty much everything. Yeah, it's like and the amount of money you can spend and the amount of resource you can put behind something. Yes, and, and just like you know, who decides what statistics are important? Well, the people that have the power to see all the statistics. So if their artist is the one with whatever numbers. Yeah. They're the ones that are important, not the one that the other people have. Um, yeah. And then, is there anything else you want to shout out or tell people about that you're working on? Like any, like I kind of, I kind of like at the end of these interviews, people just telling people other things to go read or watch. Or, um, but obviously, oh, stuff gosh. that you're working on that people should be aware of. Like next, when can they get the next issue and all those uh, things? Next issue should be out the beginning of next month. The current issue's got Laura Maybury on it, uh, which is quite nice because it's actually. 10 years since their church's first cover. Um, and Well, they probably the first magazine cover that they were on was maybe with you, would it have been? Possibly, yes. It was October 2013. No, or well, maybe it was the September one and then Paramore was the October mm. one. So, there are times where I do know them mm. all of tissue <laughs> off by heart. Who was on this one? Oh, it was them. Yeah. Um, what else? So you've got your your kind of guide to next year that's coming together. Yeah. I guess album of the year list time. Are you working on that already and all those things? I hate lists. Mm. It's just like, I just... God, I should have I, asked that as my... That was going to be uh, one of my first questions. <laughs> <laughs> I hate lists and I have always hated lists and I cannot rank even my favourite albums. My favourite album of all time is Pinkerton. Mm. But I couldn't tell you after that. So that there's an there's an entire meme on the Drowning Sound forums about Blue Album versus Pinkerton. You've already given your answer, which is going to yeah. at least get some engagement around this. <laughs> yeah, I did go to the Memories tour in New York both mm. both nights, but yeah, it's Pinkerton. Um, yeah. And even like this year, so Bully Album and the King Nun Album, who I worked with them a lot over the pandemic, and they're good mm. friends of mine. And oh, just the fact those songs are out because it took them a lot to get them out. And there was a point during one of the in-stores where I was just like, oh. So uh, yeah, everyone should go and listen to that, I think. that's <laughs> 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 wouldn't, It wouldn't be me being on brand if I didn't mention them, so. 
Good. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Drowned in Sound podcast. This episode is part of season two of the podcast. You can find links to DIY and Emma Swan's websites in the program description. This interview was hosted, researched and produced by Sean Adams. I am an AI robot, reading some words he typed. He would like to say goodbye for now, so goodbye for now. <laughs>